What's up, everyone? It's Coach Casey with the Parisi Speed School back for another week of the Parisi Podcast. Just like the last two episodes, we've got the audio from our mentorship Q&A. We had Coach Tony Bonvecchio of Bonvec Strength, formerly of the Strength House in Worcester, Massachusetts, soon to be Northborough, Massachusetts. Tony does a great introduction on himself as well as his history in strength conditioning. But Coach Bonvecchio joins us to talk coaching communication. We cover everything from how he builds context in his sessions to building confidence in his lifters, um, how he's tied that into sports performance, and how he's also worked with Gen Pop clients through uh, strength training. So I, I think it's a really great conversation. We cover a lot of different nuggets um, that I think you'll find useful. And I look forward to you guys hearing more about Tony uh, and learning a little bit more about what we do in the mentorship as well. So without further ado, we've got Coach Tony on the other side of this jingle. Welcome to the Parisi Mentorship Coaching Call Week 11. Um, we have, I say we're real friends, friendly yeah. friends. I consider you a friend. I would have a beer with you if you called me. I'd have like four or five beers with me. <laughs> <laughs> On a nightly basis, you do. Yeah. Maybe. Um, we have Tony Bonvecchio, Bonvec Strength. I'm just going to shut up now, Tony. If you could give us an introduction on who you are, what you do, where you do it, why you do it. You have a really cool story. Don't shortchange it because I will fill in the gaps on anything that I, I, I think you're missing. I try to make this shorter and shorter every time because I, I don't think it's terribly interesting, but I appreciate the, the nice intro. Uh, so my name's Tony. Uh, I'm the owner of Bonvec Strength in Worcester, Massachusetts, soon to be Northborough, Massachusetts. We're moving in T minus two weeks. Um, I, ha- I co-own the Strength House uh, in Worcester. We're in the same facility under a different name. Uh, since 2017. And prior to that, I was a coach at Cressy Sports Performance from 2014 to 2017. Um, my life before strength coaching, you know, I, I thought I wanted to be a sports writer. Um, I went to, I got my undergrad degree in journalism. So the fact that we're talking about communication today, uh, I'm going to draw a lot upon like how, how much value I think I actually derived from learning how to write really well. Um, that'll, that'll come later. But um, I played four years of college baseball and about halfway through my college baseball career, I decided I wanted to be a strength coach. I really fell in love with lifting. I was not incredibly athletically talented. I feel like this story is like fairly common, uh, like former athlete enjoyed training more than uh, enjoyed lifting more than actually playing the sport and wanted to pass that on to others. So um, after grad school, uh, sorry, after undergrad, I went to grad school and got an exercise science master's degree that became ultimately useless uh, taught me nothing about coaching um but like led me in the direction of um got me a desk job at brown university where uh i started personal training uh in the mornings and in the evenings and that ultimately led me to the Cressy sports performance internship which um that kind of launched my full-time coaching career so now i coach mostly uh competitive power lifters and people who enjoy training like power lifters even if they may not compete uh so i'd say kind of like our avatar client is somebody between their late 20s and mid 40s but we train high school kids we train people i think our oldest client turned 70 this year and she's still kicking ass she's actually training for a deadlift only meet coming up in a couple of weeks um I don't train athletes anymore. I don't do any sports performance stuff anymore, but I did for a very long time. So Casey, I appreciate you having me on, even though that's still that part of my career is kind of 
kind of in the past. Um, we're talking coaching, man. doesn't matter who you coach. We're talking coaching this week. And that's, sure. that's gonna That's going to be largely like my message that um, like communication is communication mm-hmm. and um, you have to be malleable and you have to be adaptable to the, the person you're talking to and, and what you're coaching. But like when it really comes down to it, uh, it really just is about like building relationships and connecting with people. Um, I thought about like, if I, if this was going to be a presentation, I was going to title it like, uh, be cool and stop micromanaging. Um, which like, I think is like probably like the two most important things you could do as a coach and like being cool has never come easy to me. I was never like cool ever. Um, like my sister is three years younger than me. So like I was a, uh, senior in high school when she was a freshman and she was one of the coolest kids in school. And she like, wouldn't admit that I was her brother. That's how like uncool I was in high school. But (laughs) Um, I think like the idea of like being like, when you think of somebody in your life, who's like, cool, it doesn't necessarily mean cool in the sense of like what they wear or how they act. It's just like how you feel about them. And I think as coaches, like striving to, to make that connection with the people who we coach is really, really important. Um, before the call actually started, Casey and I were talking about, I was talking a little bit about like my, uh, massive anxiety that I deal with all the time and um, caring way too much about what people think and caring way too much about like how people feel about the experience that they're having like in my business. And especially like during the pandemic and, and since then, um, I feel like I've learned to use that like caring too much in air quotes uh, as an advantage. And I think um, those of us who, who dare to care a lot and put ourselves out there are the ones who build like those really meaningful connections and end up uh, actually being able to connect with our, with our clients or our athletes or whatever you want to call them. I'm going to call them clients mostly, but know that I'm using that term interchangeably. Anybody who, who comes to you for, for exercise instruction. Um, so I guess that, did, did I tell enough about who I am? I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that you had a, you did training uh, at Brown. I knew you worked a desk job at Brown, but I didn't know you were doing like, was it like commercial gym training? Were you like, I, I just, yeah, I just, um, I'm like, man. So I, I shadowed with the, the sports performance staff at Brown. They would let me go into the varsity weight room and like, and lift uh, during off hours. But like I did some shadowing there and they really, I thought I wanted to be a collegiate strength and conditioning coach but they really opened my eyes to like how much of like a closed community it really is. Brutal. Um, And I was just like, it was too late for me. And um, I I was like in my mid twenties, I had never, I'd never been like a GA at like a SEC school, whatever, you know? So um, their recommendation was like, man, you just gotta like, just get a personal training job. There's like no barrier for entry, but you can just like work your ass off and, and actually like make some money in the process instead of, um, you know, interning for free or whatever. So I did that. And, um, I, I knew a couple people at Cressy sports performance who suggested I, I apply for the internship and I did, and that, that really changed my life getting that. And then being able to, to show very quickly what I knew and what I could do, um, on the coaching floor that, that was very helpful. So not being able to get a coaching job, like out of grad school, uh, was a blessing in disguise. It kind of like springboarded everything else. And I don't, I, I'm so happy I went into the pub, uh, private sector, I should say, um, because now I'm a business owner and it, it, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it any other way. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty bad employer, but I'd probably be a way worse employee because I'm so stubborn. Um, 
so probably for the best that I'm, I'm working for myself. That's, you know, the first time I met you was, gosh, it was, I, I know it was at a Cressy fall seminar and it must've been like 2015, 2016. I think it was 2015. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you gave a presentation on coaching communication and I've, I've, I've actually, I referenced that in one, I referenced your presentation in a presentation that I gave in 2017 um, to the Parisi network. I referenced you and Nick Winkleman and uh, Gabriel Wolf. Yep. Yeah. Gabriel, 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 I don't know. Wolf, <laughs> Wolf at all. <laughs> Dr. Wolf. Um, Dr. Wolf. Yes. I referenced you three a lot. Um, the research that you had and some of your practicalities and your, in your presentation. So either way, when I got to coaching communication for the mentorship, I was like, man, Tony's going to be an awesome, awesome person to talk to. And what I really like as well is that you are a coach, right? You coach people and you coach people to be really effing strong. And I think that's where I'd like to start because I feel like getting, like you said, you like to, to train people who are powerlifters or like to train like powerlifters, but there has got to be some serious mental obstacles when you are preparing for a meet or you're preparing for even just going into training and being just knowing how hard you're going to have to push your body and the discipline behind it. Like that's, it, it all seems like it's donuts, high carb diets and lifting heavy weights, but it's so it's not right. Like, I don't know what people's expectations are and, and maybe that's a good place to start, but how do you, how do you start to set the expectations for your, either your lifters, general population clients that are training, but kind of getting them in the mindset of like getting comfortable, getting strong, because it's, although that seems like why we would train, I feel like to some people, and I know like with our younger athletes and in, in particular people who are new to training in general, I feel like they're like, yeah, I want to get strong. And then you're like, okay, here's how we're going to get strong. And they're like, oh no, I don't, ugh, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, <laughs> I feel like, oh shit, that's what it's about. So maybe yeah. that's a good way to start. The, that, that's a, a great question. And, um, I, that presentation that I gave at that fall seminar was like, I, at that moment, the proudest moment of my life, um, being able to like give that and, and, and the good feedback that I got about it. Um, ironically, like revisiting that in preparation for this, uh, this talk, um, I think my views on communication are, are, are very different now, honestly. Ooh. Um, and, and that presentation was largely about like queuing, right? Like being, yes. um, yeah. effective and economical with your queuing. I think a lot of those aspects still hold true, especially for people, if they are in the sports performance community, um, knowing when to use internal queuing, knowing when to use external queuing, knowing when to change the environment and change the task and that kind of thing. Um, but that's become at the time, because like, that was something that I figured out on our staff, I was able to do better than anybody else. Like that was my strength. So I just like, I poured all my energy into that and thought like, that was the difference. Uh, when it turned out like, uh, that's just like a very small piece of the puzzle mm -hmm. and segueing into the question you asked, like being able to build trust and buy-in with people and make them, uh, comfortable in, high pressure moments and being able to, to just go out and perform, that's probably way more important than the actual like nuts and bolts of like, can you be the most efficient with your external queuing to help somebody deadlift? Um, so I think we can agree that in the sports performance world, what ultimately sets the elite of the elite 
apart from just kind of the, the good and the great is being able to perform at their best when it matters the most, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not to get the yips or to get cold feet or just like choke. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with actually putting some time and effort into the mental side of training. I know you're a big fan of Dr. Rob Gilbert um, from Montclair State University. I still call the success hotline every day. Um, I was lucky enough to have Brian Kane, um, one of the foremost experts in sports, uh, mental training for sports performance uh, as my high school athletic director. We actually put way more time and effort into actually training the mental side of, of powerlifting than ever before. Um, and kind of like integrate it into our actual physical training. And a lot of it comes with just um, facilitating more decision-making on the part of the lifter. And that's why I said, I said I would title it like be cool and stop micromanaging <laughs> because I've learned uh, to program and communicate in such a way that the lifters take a lot of ownership and make a lot of the really important training decisions on their own. Um, a lot of that comes from like, just like a lot of RPE based training and letting them understand how to like self-assess their own capabilities very early on. Um, RPE training is like wild, very, very popular now, right? I think like you'd be hard pressed to find a sports performance or a strength coach who is unfamiliar with RPE based training. Um, and I think we all have used it at one point or another. It maybe just not called that, you know, whether you call it like listening to your body or just like, okay, I feel great. So I'm going to go heavier or I feel like shit. So I'm going to go a little lighter. Um, but when preparing for a powerlifting meet specifically where on one specific day, you have to be at your very best, uh, you, you have to make some really important decisions along the way. Right. Yeah. Um, and right from this, from the get-go, like we, at, at Bonvec strength, we, we train in groups and you're either a level one, a level two, or a level three, where a level one is a novice lifter and level two is an intermediate lifter and a level three is an advanced lifter. Um, they all use RPE based training and we have like very specific, uh, like instructions and expectations for how to, how to choose the weight on the bar with a lot of built-in uh, kind of like checks for those. For example, the, the newer lifters who may just not be good at listening to their own body yet, um, their heaviest RPE based sets are always followed by either an AMRAP set with a lighter weight or a set to one rep in reserve where like we have rep targets where like, okay, if you hit this many reps um, within this range, that means you did a great job of, of assessing your RPE. Like you, you guessed right. If you're like way over the rep target, that means like you're being a little bitch and went way too light. I would never say that, of course, but <laughs> unless, unless I were comfortable enough with that person. And again, communication, knowing who you're talking to, knowing who you can curse around and like kind of give them little jabs, sure. but also knowing who you have to kind of like coddle and be like, you know what? You went a little light today, but that's okay. Like you're still great. Like, uh, you know, and, and just being malleable in that sense. hundred percent. Um, but I've learned that, uh, you know, I think, again, in the sports performance world, using like a constraints-based approach for a teaching movement, especially very fast movements, sprinting, changing direction, jumping, et cetera, um, like using constraints within your programming to help people uh, make better training decisions, what weight to put on the bar specifically. Um, when they learn to make those important decisions, they become a lot more confident, especially going into game day, if you will, um, where it's a little bit less like, 
oh, like this is what coach says I should do. I don't know if I can do this versus like coach and I made this decision together. Like I can do this. Uh, and I found that to be really, really important. I, I really enjoy the management of training. I know a lot of coaches uh, and, and specifically coaches who are business owners like to step away from the actual like programming and day-to-day -day coaching, but I love the management of training so much. I enjoy like watching it unfold and, and making the weekly decisions that go into a lifters programming um, that I don't know if I could ever step away from that because it, it goes so much more, it goes so much deeper than just deciding like, okay, like sets, reps, weights, exercises. Uh, it really goes down into like the, the, what I type on the spreadsheet, like it, it has been a product of like me forging those relationships and getting to know people and getting to know how they, how they tick. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, no, it does. Cause it, it sounds like it's about building autonomy with your client. Like it really at least, is at least getting them to like, I, I don't know if it's necessarily like ownership or autonomy. Cause it's like, they're, they're, they're a part of the coaching process as well. Very much so. Yeah. And, and that's where I think I'm so much different now than I was in 2015, where I gave that presentation where I, I felt at that time, it was so much like a lifter or an athlete's success in training was a hundred percent dependent on like how well I programmed and coached. It's like, if I did a great job, the lifter is going to do a great job, which is like incredibly arrogant. Like, it's just like as a young coach often is, but that's what a lot of, uh, I still think to this day, like, I think a lot of strength conditioning professionals, that's what they gauge their success on. Like my program was great. Like you must've messed up athlete client. Like, yep. It's shame on you. And that's so and far from it. And then the same people who like thump their chest to like Jocko Willink and like extreme ownership and all that shit. And it's really like, they're just like there it's a total farce because like as soon as something goes wrong they they throw They're their like, hands up and say that me. ain't my fault yeah yep, wasn't me. i wrote the numbers that you know the human body is predictable which again is like completely false um and i'll tell a little story about like uh one of the uh meet i coached at maybe a little less than a year ago now um but we had a lot of lifters there and there was a lady in front of us in the in the flight in front of us and she was being coached by a, a very large beard, even larger than me with a larger beard too um large man shaved head uh he had a hat on as like you know as a shaved uh, head you, yeah everyone does yeah for sure and, and this lady missed a bench press attempt and they came back into the warm-up room and her coach was just like that's just all mental that's just all mental and i thought to myself like what an absolute cop-out on his part he's saying like that's not my fault. I, you know, it's not the programming. It's not me. It's you, the lifter. And, and I just, I promised myself when I heard that, like, I'm never going to say that to anybody because that, that was just like such a, um, it, it showed me that, that the relationship was not what it should be between that lifter and that coach. And at that point, I also vowed to take the mental side of training a lot more seriously, as far as like actually integrating it into the programming. Um, so and that, where do you even go from there? Like, there's no actual like feedback. That's a, it's blame. Exactly. It, yes, it is blame. It is. Um, and there are, there is a time for tough love and there is time to like, have like come to Jesus moments between coach and athlete. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, that that lifter then went into her deadlifts 
like thinking about like, okay, like I'm a head case. Like I have a, I have a problem with the mental side. Like I, I getting in my own way, like, am I going to let coach down? So that's where I think like communicating on, on game day, especially is more important than anything, knowing what's going, what your words and your body language will do to a lifter's ability to perform at their best, to put them at ease, to put them in a flow state, whatever, whatever they need to feel to do their best. And some lifters and some athletes need to get fired up. They need somebody to get in their face and smack them around a little bit and get them fired up. Some athletes need to be, you know, you need to tell them a joke and make them make it more lighthearted, um, whisper sweet nothings in their ear, whatever. Like you just, and you don't know what that athlete needs until you spend a lot of time together in the training process. So you get to know them and you get to know what's going to actually unlock their best performance. Um, do you ask any, it, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I thought you were done. You go. Uh, no, you go ahead. Cause it, uh, it may segue nicely into what I was sure. going to say next. I was just going to say, like, when you talk about that process of getting to know someone, do you ask, like, do you have any questions that you like to ask in the onboarding process or even like over the first, like two weeks of training with someone that you're like, okay, if I can figure out this, 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 and this, and then how they answer those questions, I probably can formulate what kind of person they may be and how to communicate with them. Yes, absolutely. And, and I learned this too. I, I learned this uh, coaching the, f- the first ever woman who I coached uh, before she was a mom. And then when she returned to powerlifting after becoming a mom, and we actually became first time parents right around the same time. So again, like connection, uh, like similarity, like being able to like have empathy for each other. Um, so, so important. And she was like having a really hard time just getting in all her training sessions. And I realized that I'm like, I need, and I am of the person I'll tell a story in a little bit about why I coach people a certain way because of how I like to get feedback. But I just like was telling her every time, like, it's okay. We'll do better next week. It's okay. We'll do better next week. And it wasn't getting any better. So eventually I'm just like, Hey, how hard do you want me to be on you? Do you want me to like yell at you and be like, what the hell? Like you've only gotten two out of three training sessions for a month now, like per week for a month now. Like, do you want me to yell at you? Do you want me to be like really empathetic and just like be like, okay, she's doing the best she can. And she's like, no, I want you to be harder on me. I need it. And and that was a huge revelation for me because I am super sensitive and I take everything personally. And you can ask my wife, like you tell me that I'm doing a bad job with something as a dad, as a husband, as a business owner. And I want to just cry myself to sleep. I take everything personally. (laughs) So me realizing that not everybody reacts that way was a really important turning point for me. Um, And a a little bit, a little more backstory, you know, in my college baseball days, I had a hitting coach who taught me everything I wanted to be as a coach and everything I did not want to be as a coach. Mm -hmm. And, um, I grew up in a tiny little town in Northern Vermont and was a, a big fish in a tiny pond as far as baseball went. So when I went to play college baseball for the first time, it was a rude awakening when everybody was a billion times better than me. And I made the team as a walk-on simply on effort. Um, but I had one coach, coach Kaz was his name. He's since passed away. Um, he used so many forward thinking, incredible hitting drills that totally transformed me as a baseball player from a, from a skill perspective. 
And when you think about what the John Kylies of the world um, and like basically anybody who's forward thinking in terms of skill acquisition and motor development um, and using the environment and using drills to teach instead of like verbal cueing, um, it, it was brilliant. And I'll forever thank him for that because I've been able to draw upon so much of the technical side of coaching from the way that he transformed my ability to hit a baseball. But Coach Kaz, it feels wrong to say about the, some, this about somebody who has passed on, but he was a dick. He was so mean. And that he, I'll never forget my sophomore year in the fall, we went to Bryant University and we were warming up. We were doing infield outfield and I was a catcher. And we only carried two catchers. So the starting catcher was in the bullpen warming up the pitcher. And we had just instituted the week before a new infield outfield routine, which was just absolute utter chaos. And at any given time, there were like three or four baseballs moving around. So I was always catching, throwing down the third, catching, throwing down the second. And it was just too much for me. And at one point, I think like I threw a ball and didn't turn in time and it hit off my helmet. And he screamed at me. He sent me back to the dugout. He said, get out of here. You're embarrassing the shit out of us. And they finished their infield outfield with no catcher. And I remember just like how much that hurt me to be like publicly humiliated like that. And I swore to myself at that moment, I knew I was going to be involved in coaching somehow, some way. I said, I'm never going to make anybody ever feel like that because I'll, you know, the Maya Angelou quote, um, I have it written down here to make sure that I don't mess it up. Um, very famous quote. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I vowed to never make anybody feel like, even if they're trying their best, that they're like not worthy of being yeah. where they are. So the same coach who taught me to be like a technically skilled coach uh, also taught me the way that I wanted people to feel about the coaching I was giving them. So I think that sent me down a road of being like, uh, like perhaps overly empathetic and like a very nice coach. Um, my wife to this day says like the first time she met me, she like couldn't, she thought my niceness was like a, uh, was like a front. She's like, I could not believe how nice you were. I, I thought you were kidding. Um, and I pride myself in like being the good cop in every situation. Oh, hundred percent, dude. Every mom's a bad cop. 100%. <laughs> yes. 100%. Um, but in every relationship, business ownership, uh, who, whatever other coaches out on the training floor, I always try to be the good cop. But I've realized, again, that not everybody responds best to that. Like uh, toxic positivity has become like a thing now, right? Like being sure. positive just for the sake of being positive. Um, but it comes down to, to, for me, literally asking at the first sign of a lifter not giving their best effort. I throw it out there. How do you want me to respond to this? Do you want me to give you a kick in the ass? Do you want me to yell at you? Or do you want me to like pat you on the head and tell you it's okay? And people are, people are honest. And I think that people appreciate you asking um, because a big part of that 2015 presentation was like learning styles, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about kinesthetic versus visual versus auditory. Um, but the way that people perceive feedback is really important too. Uh, and a very important book that I read during the pandemic when um, my coaching staff was like falling apart from a communication standpoint uh, was a book called Thanks for the Feedback by Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen. Uh, that was transformative for me as well. Understanding the way that after we've received some harsh feedback or just feedback in general, uh, what our brains do 
and how any information that we're given after that or any task that we're asked to perform after that uh, can be dramatically affected by our perception of that feedback. Hmm. So if you're working with somebody and you scream and yell at them and that makes them shut down, like you're not going to get a good performance from them until they cool down and forget about it. Um, other people, like they, they need to be elevated. They need to be like stimulated via your feedback. And, and that's where like a, perhaps a little bit of a raised voice or like getting in their face and challenging, challenging them a little bit may elevate their performance. Um, I had an intern who worked for us for a while, who was a former college baseball player. And, and, uh, he said, he always said like, I want you to tell me I suck. Like I hate positive feedback <laughs> and at the, at the time I'm like, that is so bizarre because like, that would be so ineffective for me, but big surprise. You can't coach every exercise the same. You can't give the same training program to every person. You can't give feedback the same way either. Um, and I'm sure a lot of, uh, of, people in the Parisi circle have read uh, Conscious Coaching by Brett Bartholomew, uh, very, very helpful book. Uh, it talks about being a chameleon. Brett says, you've got to adapt your coaching style to the athlete in order to get buy-in and get trust, uh, to build trust. So like a one-size-fits-all communication approach is just as ineffective as a one-size-fits-all training program. And that's, that's actually the, one of the biggest things that I find uh, when I was coaching the Parisi curriculum, but now like working with the guys who do coach it is, and a lot of coaches who come into the Parisi system, like they, they work through the Parisi system and they're like, this is the answer, right? Like this is the progressions that I take my athletes through. This is how we warm them up. Like they have, they understand the training mythology thinking that that's the whole thing, but it, it, it's like the, the chef analogy. Like if you took three different chefs and asked them to make the same dish, it might come out looking the same, but how they prepared it and the little nuances in there that really make them unique shine through. And that's where to a coach, I love what you said there and how it's, you have to be a chameleon. You have to adapt your, with what you do and what you're comfortable with, you have to mold that and adapt it to the individuality of, of the athletes or the group or team that you're working with. And that is probably the secret sauce. Like your ability to do that repeatedly for a career is incredibly difficult, but that's and unfortunately you can't, you can't systemize. You can't, that. no, you can't not systemize relationship building. No. Um, which is why like, I, I hate giving any sort of talk, uh, or presentation without like actionable takeaways, but I'm not sure there's like a bunch of clear cut actionable takeaways here. That's why I'm just like, be cool. <laughs> be cool. But, and I, <laughs> like, and I think, and don't micromanage like uh, the, you, it was, you're spot on with that, you know? And I think the actionable takeaway that you've already given it is like, don't be afraid to walk up to your client and be like, how do you want me to give you feedback? Yeah. Right. Like that's so often over. I know one of the, it's one of the questions I ask my clients is if you mess up, how do you want me to tell you? Do you want me to write you an email? Do you want me to call you? Do you want a text message? Do you want me to handwrite you a letter? Like, how do you want me? <laughs> like, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to tell you? Like, cause if you mess up, like I got to tell you just like, if I mess up I, this, and I'm like, this is how I would want, how I want you to tell me if you're a program has something weird on it. If it's late, if I, you ask me to do something and I'm late falling, like I need you to, to call me or shoot me a text message and verbally hurt my, like hurt my feelings. Like I need that. <laughs> but I do think, um, you know, I'm going to sound like a old man, like yelling at a cloud, like people are very, very sensitive for sure. right now more for than sure. ever perhaps. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's important information. And that's yeah. not for us as coaches to ignore. 
uh, I think like the, the days of like the old school, like scream and yell, say that you suck, like you're a piece of crap like that. That's just like what we know about skill acquisition and motor skill development is just not effective. It's not effective. It might be effective in coaching efforts, but like when you're, when you're teaching somebody exercises or movements where like execution matters, I just think for 99% of, of lifters and athletes, like that approach is, is just ineffective. It gets in the way of learning and it just makes people shut down. Um, there will be the outliers, like the intern who wanted me to tell him that he sucked, but I do think there's a huge difference between like coaching a movement and coaching effort. Um, and you, and you got to pick your spots to, to do both. Um, and I think if you're, and I, I'm trying to frame this in the idea of the Parisi speed school, where you are largely trying to develop athletic movements, like sprinting and changing direction. Like if you're choosing the right drills, which aren't going to involve a lot of like talking, um, then you can perhaps pour a little bit more effort into coaching the effort side of things. Um, and that, that's something that like, uh, obviously like anything that I'm talking about here is a rehash from Brett Bartholomew or Nick Winkleman or John Kiley or any of the the people who are much smarter than me in terms of, of actually coaching and, and communication. Um, but like, I don't spend a lot of time verbally coaching exercises anymore. I do a lot more selecting exercises that are going to teach something, a constraints-based approach. Um, and then a lot more like shutting up and watching. And then a lot more recapping with the lifter after and almost always trying to elicit their feedback first. Can you give us like a live example, like maybe in like a, a recent program or recent workout session you've had with someone, like how you kind of put that into play? Yeah, for sure. By so, all means, play um, the powerlifting. This is this is amazing. This is amazing. Like coaching right here. So please, um, any any. So I like, I don't do I don't do assessments anymore. I don't okay. do movement screen. If somebody comes in and they're like very injured, um, like maybe I'll do like a couple of like screens just to make sure that we're like, should we or should we not squat? Should we or should we not deadlift? Um, but no longer am I like start to finish like FMS SFMA like and. and that's the right move for some people for, for me and my business, it's not. And for what I'm trying to coach people to do, it's, it's not right for me, but we do a lot of um, what John Kylie would call like repetition without repetition, where like in the warmups, we're doing a lot of goblet squats in three different stances, narrow, medium, wide. We're doing a lot of goblet squats, holding the kettlebell at our hips, holding the kettlebell in a goblet position, holding the kettlebell behind our head. We're doing a lot of push-ups with different hand placements, uh, on different surfaces and a lot of like the same movement slightly adjusted for me to watch and see what's best for them. And then for them to like pick the one that's best for them. So like I have a new lady coming in tomorrow morning at eight 30 and we're going to have her do a full body day where she's going to do some squats and she's going to do some bench presses and you bet your ass in the warm up, she'll be goblet squatting with three different stances narrow, medium, wide. And I will be able to pick out right away because I've seen a gabillion squats, what the best stance is for her, what her, the right toe angle is for her, how her hip internal rotation is. Um, but I'm going to ask her like, okay, which of those three felt the best? And she's going to pick the one that felt the best. And once she moves on to a heavier variation of the squat outside the warm up, like that's what we're going to go with. And we're going to draw upon that context. Um, instead of me being like, you've got 
insufficient hip internal rotation to squat this way. So we are going to do X, Y, Z movement correction drills to make sure you can squat the right way. Um, don't create a problem where there's not really a problem. A uh, little bit of a soapbox, but uh, no, that's one example. Fine. Quote that tweet. Tweet that. Someone tweet uh, that. Another example for like our, our more seasoned power lifters, like uh, within our group training, now we do what are called working warmups, um, which like a John Kylie would call this like part practice, where uh, you take like a certain aspect of the movement you're trying to teach, you, you parse it out, and then you bring it back full circle to the actual skill you're trying to develop. The analogy I would use is like a baseball player hits off the tee before a game, then maybe they do some front toss. And then they go hit in the game against live pitching where I think in powerlifting, a lot of the times, uh, like I certainly used to program this way. And a lot of coaches still program this way. Okay. You do the competition style lift first. I'm gonna do my competition style squat. Then I'm going to do some pause squats, or then I'm going to do some front squats. I'm going to do my deadlifts from the floor. And then I'm going to do my deficit deadlifts, or then I'm going to do my RDLs where the skill transfer from the secondary movement, it's in the wrong order. You need to be able to bring it back full circle to the competition lift. And plus, people just dog it through their warmups anyways. They don't take their warmups seriously. They got the empty bar, okay, whatever, 135, uh, whatever. If we can make like 135, 185, and then they're working set 225, if we can make the warmups more challenging, they're just going to pay more attention and they're actually going to get something out of it. So now warming up to our main, uh, the heavy weights of our main lifts, we do a slightly more challenging variation. So maybe if, um, maybe if we're bench pressing, we're our working warmups are two to three sets of a three, one, three tempo bench. So it's like, okay, three seconds down, one second, pause three seconds up. Like, so you actually have to pay attention to your elbow positioning. You have to pay attention to your bar path, um, stuff like that, where like the feedback is nonverbal from me. And we're actually trying to make them make mistakes so they can adjust in the moment. Uh, one of our client favorites is 20 second pause squats. And, oh, and we'll, we'll do one set where we pause halfway down on the way down. And we'll do another set where we pause all the way in the hole. We'll do another set where we do the full oh. eccentric and then go halfway up and pause there. It's like, these suck. Yeah. And we're, and you're going to make mistakes, but you're going to learn from the mistakes and you're going to learn. And these exercises are far better coach than I will ever be. Now, will you facilitate feedback after that? Like, how do you, or how do you facilitate the feedback after that? Cause I so love you, that approach. I usually, usually the way that we'll do it is like the first set will, will, I will give no instructions other than like, this is the exercise I'll demonstrate it. And it's like, okay, go do it. And then after everybody's done it. And I especially love the time ones because like, uh, I have like nervous energy. So I have, I have stopwatch in my hand. I feel more useful <laughs> instead of just like sitting there. Like, I don't know what to do with my hands, but, um, if I've got an entire group, if I've got like five, six, seven lifters all doing that, we could do it together and then we could kind of bring it back after the first set. It's like, okay, like so-and-so I saw you had a technical error. What was it? And they'll be able to recognize it. They just hung out in a shitty position for 20 seconds. Like they're yeah, smart enough to identify know. it. Um, and then somebody else will be like, yeah, I felt that too. Like, okay, cool. We're going to do it again. And what are we going to do to make sure we don't do that anymore? Um, and it's like, okay, if somebody, let's say their knees caved in and they had a hard time keeping their knees out, like, okay, what are we going to do? They're going to like, they're going to be, I'm going to keep my knees out. Okay, cool. How are you going to do that? Um, I'm going to twist my feet into the ground, screw my feet in the ground. Yes, let's go. So it's a lot less of me just being like, do this, do this, out. do this, do this, put your knees out, 
keep your chest up, keep your chest up. Cause it goes back again to that arrogant coach who like did everything they were supposed to do. I said all the right cues. You know, I said everything that like Louis Simmons said, I'm supposed to say to a lifter while they're squatting, but if it's not working, it's not working. So like you need a, you need to give the lifter a stronger reason to change the motor pattern that they're developing. Um, so, and it's just, it's much more fun for me and engaging, especially in a group setting. Because as many people did during COVID, like we massively changed our business model from like a very individualized, like self-paced training environment to a lot more group training. And it was a fun challenge for us. It's like, okay, how can we train like a bunch of pretty strong power lifters in a group setting in a way that doesn't feel like a boot camp, but then also doesn't take like three hours just to like do a heavy squat day. And um, orchestrating like these working warmups was a very, very effective way. Uh, and people just learn faster. They take their warmups more seriously. Um, it facilitates like a more even pace where it's like, okay, the beginners aren't finishing in 45 minutes and the advanced lifters are finishing in 90 minutes. Everybody's like paced a little bit more evenly. Um, and that's just been a, it's been a fun change because I could pay more attention to everyone because it's less like, okay, this person fucked up. So I have to like yell at them uh, every single rep for the, the entire set. And suddenly I miss what's going on, like with all these other lifters, uh, I'm able to take a much more like, um, you know, 10,000 foot view of the room and, and let my exercise selection do the coaching more so than my mouth do the coaching. 100%. I mean, that's, I'm a believer that exercise selection is the most important exercise variable or, or, or training variable in a program. Um, obviously like that bias is coming from training a gen pop um clientele or a 13 year old that has no clue about whatever they're doing with their body so like they have to be put in a position to feel it out but i i i'm enamored by the the working warm-up concept as well as just like how that prompts the feedback right like and how that engages the lifter in in between the ears versus just physically like people expect to just come in and get the shit kicked out of them in a training session. Like that's, that's the unfortunate truth of our industry. People just, if you're not dying in your workout, something's not going right. And yet this idea of, of being confident and comfortable. And, and, and I say comfortable, not like, not like you're not necessarily in the literal sense of like being comfortable versus uncomfortable, but like coming in and knowing, I guess in a comfort, the word comfortable in a sense, like coming in and knowing that you're going to be able to get through it is comforting versus going into a workout and being like, am I going to puke? Like, am yeah. I going to be curled up in a puddle after this? Like, you know, like just being comfortable with the outcome, I guess is, is the way to, to phrase it. But that's, that's, I mean, that's, gosh, that's like the, the big takeaway of the, of the call for me, man. Like that's, that stuff's phenomenal. I think sports performance coaches have actually done a great job of this for like a very long time, because like you look at a, generic track and field warm-up adapted to sports performance it's like okay before you do like full tilt sprints like you're gonna march and you're gonna skip and you're gonna do like uh you're just gonna do these drills that like build context and, and create part practice build the you know, take your sprinting the aspects of sprinting and work on them like bit by bit and then bring them full circle um and i think that power lifting it, you have to be careful. And I, I learned this during grad school. You have to be careful when the lifters, the power lifters and the Olympic weight lifters are the ones writing the protocols and the textbooks for how to train athletes. Because for power lifters and weight lifters, 
uh, training is sport practice. Mm -hmm. For athletes, it's not. It's very general, right? It's, a, it's as general as you could possibly get. Um, so the way that you build motor skill development and skill acquisition into training is very different. And I think I got caught up in the, the specificity trap for a long, long time with, for powerlifting. Um, and like, I was, I was very heavily influenced by, uh, Chad Wesley Smith from, from juggernaut, uh, training systems, who was like very much like by the book block periodization, ton of specificity, like specificity is king. Um, where it's just like to get good at squatting, you just got to squat over and over and over and over and over. But the more I learned from the sports performance realm, especially John Kiley. And then I think, uh, Mike to of reactive training systems, uh, who's like still to this day, one of the better power lifters in the world and trains so many of the best in the world. Um, understanding that specificity is not as specific as you think it needs to be, especially when, when we're powerlifting. Um, so like, so oh, you shouldn't high bar back squat with a narrow stance too much. If your competition style squat is low bar with a wide stance, like it's really not that different, you know? <laughs> and if, <laughs> if, if it, if it's one or two degrees removed from the competition movement, but it teaches you something and it brings positional awareness and teaches you to correct in the moment, like that, that works. That's great. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Um, and, and we talk about something called movement wells where like, um, you know, the more you practice a movement, it's like, it's like digging a well deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, but if you practice hyper specificity and you're building bad habits and your technique sucks, like you can build that well of poor technique pretty deep. Yeah. It's going to take a long time to dig back out. Yeah. Right. It works so both ways. you have, yeah. So you have to be a little careful with like how deep you're digging your well, uh, from a specificity standpoint. And, um, I still, there are still some lifters who I train to this day. Like luckily I've had pretty good retention. Cause remember I'm so fucking nice. People <laughs> like to stick around, um, that there are, there are lifters who I coached four, five, six, seven years ago who like, I just didn't know any better. I let them get away with like some really bad technique. And like, they're still not as technically sound as some lifters I've been coaching for six months or a year. Uh, just, they were the victim of my lack of knowledge or just like ignorance. Um, and they dug their wells pretty deep with bad technique. So we're like still working our way back out. And luckily I feel like I have like the knowledge and the tools to, to, you know, dig, a, uh, dig up a little faster now, yeah. um, or at least not dig the well any deeper, <laughs> but that's where I think sports performance coaches have like a, a pretty distinct advantage over power lifters and weightlifters. Um, because like, there are so many more tools to get the job done that you're less likely to have like an athlete dig a pretty deep well of, of poor technique. Uh, and while I no longer train athletes, cause I simply don't want to, um, I'm thankful for my time in sports performance and the mentors that I had, uh, because I think it's made me a lot better powerlifting coach. Cause I understand, uh, skill acquisition and, and motor skill development a little bit better than perhaps people who have been exposed to nothing but powerlifting. Yeah. I mean. Uh, and, and sorry, yeah. we do. We did have a question in the chat. Yeah, so. I do. I just gonna, I got it for you here from Valerie. How have you communicated the working warm up to new clients? Do you find that there's better buy into the warm up? I feel like this would be great for younger athletes as well as to keep them interested, and engaged in the warm up. A thousand percent. Yeah, because you don't you don't even necessarily have to like phrase it as a warm up, right? It's just like okay, we're gonna start lifting, start working out, and like the <laughs> first lift we're gonna do is. I don't know, a, a 20 second pause squat or a, oh, um, God, why do you have to keep bringing that up? 
because of because oh. it works man it works <laughs> oh. and, and that's the other thing too is like powerlifting is so slow compared to sporting movements that we have the luxury of doing a lot more internal cueing a lot more work on the setup versus things like a sprint or a change of direction or a med ball throw or something that's like yeah. higher speed um where you can't be as process oriented you have to be a little bit more outcome oriented yeah. and make things a little bit more task-based um but yeah i mean and and my warm-ups like our general group warm-ups are much less um cressy-esque than perhaps they used to be i, I I'll, I'll never forget the days of having to take like a, a minor league baseball player through like 20 foam rolling drills and then 15 to 20 like ground-based mobility drills like thinking that was a good use of our time um now our warm-ups <laughs> our warm-ups look a lot more like lifting now but if i choose the exercises correctly and use some that like actually expose poor positioning or whatever like uh i can then that is my assessment so i know like okay so and so should be doing sumo deadlifts instead of conventional deadlifts because their hinge looks a little wonky in a narrow stance or like um choosing like the right grip width on a bench press based on like how their scapulohumeral rhythm looks when they're doing push-ups it's like i can spot that stuff um but i don't need to take them through like eight to ten reps of some of these guys and eight to ten reps of like some of these guys in the warm-up where they don't give a shit about that like if you if you understand what movements are done in certain exercises, like you can choose a more interesting exercise uh, to assess that stuff and to do in a warm up. So specifically with like the younger athletes, yeah, I think like your warm up should probably look more like lifting than like a, a kin stretch class. No, no hate on FRC. What, a, what an amazing reference there. What an amazing reference. <laughs> and we still use a ton of like FRC principles, but this like, I don't know, warm ups can look like lifting. I don't sure. think, I, I don't think that the, and you'll still have some hardos, like some highly respected hardos who will be like, dude, just like, you know, it's a good squat warm up, like do three sets of 10 with the empty bar. And it's not quite that simple, right? You know, um, there, there are certain things that you can do laying down on the ground and focusing on your breathing and taking joints through a full range of motion that will make you a more effective power lifter or a more effective athlete after the fact. Um, so of course the answer is somewhere in the middle, right? Don't yeah. just jump under the bar and do a couple sets of 10 with the empty bar and think that you're warmed up, but also like, don't roll on the ground on the ground for 45 minutes. Like it's, it's easy enough to see that like either end of this, of the, you know, either extreme is, is probably not the best course of action. And I don't want it to fall out of, of the picture here. Like Tony, you are an incredibly technical coach. So like when you say like, you can look at how an app, like it's not coming from a place of ignorance. Like when people like listen to the recording, like Tony, like you have a, an elite powerlifting total, correct? Yes. Yeah. Like you, 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 <laughs> you like walk the walk, talk the talk, coach the people like, you know, cause I, I feel like at times, and I've, I've heard this when I've gone to other Parisi speed schools, you know, and I don't want to put an age number, but someone who's been coaching for eight months to 18 months. And they're like, Oh no, I, I know what I'm looking at. Like, well, I don't know. You're, you know, the equity you have in the industry as a younger coach, you might not be able to get away with, with a general, like, like a working warm up. It might not be the right idea. Right. It's, like it's if you hard, don't know what right? you're looking at, it's yeah. probably not the right idea to just start with something like that you can see. But if you do, and you understand your training system and you understand your coaching, then it's probably the, a better thing for you. 
it's hard, man, because like uh, it, 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 hindsight is twenty twenty, and what do they call it? Like, um, I think like survivorship bias or something like that. Um, I think I had to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very in-depth assessments to like learn functional anatomy and understand how like somebody's active and passive range of motion and somebody's yeah. like impingement tests relate back to, to um, how they're going to lift. And now I can just like eyeball it by now watching, you know. by watching eight yeah. to 12 reps of a goblet squat. Uh, it sucks because you like, I don't know how else you would maybe learn that. Um, but that's anything like, right. Like the law of like exposure, like if you're just around it for time, like that's like bar equity, that's just the, the reps and the reps and the reps, you know, that's, but that goes back to the big global thing. You're like building your coaching community, like your, your ability to communicate as a coach, like that, like you even said, like what in the presentation in 2015, like so much stuff has changed because that's how it should be. Like, that's the evolution. That's the, you got it, yeah. that's the understanding. Yeah. Like, if you're not growing, if you're way. not just like what we're talking about, like we talk about in coaching, lifting, like feeding the mistake, mm -hmm. like uh, using exercises and protocols that are going to make, we always call it like the 20% rule, like one out of five reps should suck because like you use it as a teaching moment. You got to do a lot of coaching and make a lot of mistakes, I suppose, to like 100%. learn and, and refine your coaching technique. But I do think like um, the, the message that I can relay that's not just like go out there make your mistakes and take 10 years to like become a good coach. It, how can I, how can I phrase this without, again, without sounding like a hardo? Do it. I mean, like it, it helps to like mentor under somebody, mm -hmm. like find somebody who's figured it out and like shadow them, learn from them in turn with them. Um, I, I, my right hand man, Chris, who, who coaches with me uh, has like by and large, like his, his coaching ability is so much further along than like what it, what it probably should be given his like amount of experience. He like has not been doing this very long, but I feel a thousand percent comfortable, like leaving him out, like stepping away, going home and getting home in time for tubby time and bedtime with my daughter. Um, when there's a gym full of, full of really good powerlifters, like he, he knows what he's doing. Um, and I've had the benefit of, you know, I had him as an intern first and then he worked part-time for a long time and now he's my right-hand man. Um, and I've just been able to, to facilitate his growth as a coach. Um, and, you know, we, we covered all the functional anatomy and made sure that he knew what's going on inside to be able to work on what's going on outside. Um, but there's no master's degree. There's no like 10 years of, of coaching. It's just been like a, I've had to be a, a strong mentor to him and I've had so many of those along the line too. Yeah. And help 100%. me in a mentor helps you filter what's important and what to focus on. Right. Cause just like we're coaching an exercise, like I no longer start from the beginning chapter one bench press. Here's what your shoulders should do. Here's what your feet should do. Here's what your hands should do. You know, it's like, okay, like watch me do it. I might give you like one or two exceptionally important points that are worth talking about. And I let you do it. And then we review and we correct and we, we do it over and over and we use the drills that are important. So you are not thinking about everything all at once. And that's when I knew I was doing a better job with coaching is when my lifters were no longer giving me the regular feedback of, oh, there's just so much to focus on. And like, I used to be like, yeah, powerlifting is really complicated. There's a lot to focus on. So let's focus on it all. And now if somebody says that to me, I'll literally say to them, like, that's my fault. I understand. 
but I don't want you to focus on everything. Let's focus on this one thing. And then maybe we change their working warm up based on the feedback they're giving and what they're giving, uh, uh, what they're having trouble with. So I cannot emphasize that if you, if you take nothing else away from this talk, from like an actual nuts and bolts coaching perspective, uh, it's like, just use more constraints-based coaching, like use more exercises, variants of the exercise you're trying to work on to do the coaching. Uh, cause like your words are not as powerful as you think they are from an actual skill acquisition standpoint, your words are exceptionally important for building relationships. Um, and that's why like the coaches who say like, I hate all the small talk. Like, I just want to coach. I don't want to like talk to so-and-so about how their day is going. It's like too fucking bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, right. like, yeah. that's what you're going to do 90% of the time to like show people that you're there for them and that you care about them. Because like then when you go, if, if you're coaching powerlifters and you go to the meet or you're coaching uh, at the college sector and you're, you know, there on the sideline for their, you know, conference championship, they know that you've got their back and they know that you care about them and that you care about them doing their best. Tony, I do want to be mindful of your time. Can you said you're going over to your new spot here? Um, where can people find more Tony? I, I mean, just, I got to hear from your words. Um, all the stuff we're doing from a, from a training perspective, uh, best places are Instagram Bonvec underscore strength. Um, Bonvec is B O N V E C. It's just my last name shortened. Um, that's the best place to see like all the, the informational content that we're putting out. Um, bonvecstrength.com. I, I regularly post on the blog there. Uh, I put up a lot of stuff uh, from my newsletter. My newsletter subscribers get a lot of uh, inside info and more like uh, technical heavy, coaching heavy stuff because like I said, the management of training is super interesting to me. So if you go on bombvexstrength.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. Um, you get a bunch of really old videos of me teaching you how to bench press. <laughs> um, I got to update that, my uh, <laughs> newsletter giveaways at some point. Um, you got enough yeah, going the, on. The, the Instagram and the newsletter are probably the, the two places to to get the most value from what we're putting out there. It's huge. And I will make sure those links get put out for sure. Tony, I cannot thank you enough. Any chance I get this to shoot the shit with you, I want to do it. So next time in you're in Vermont, let me know. 